Uh, today we, we get to uh, focus our attention on the 14th chapter of 1 Corinthians. We have been on a journey. This is our 14th week that we've spent in 1 Corinthians. I think we started this journey with online services, and then we made it all through outdoor services in 1 Corinthians, and we're just coming up now to the end of of 1 Corinthians. We have 14, 15, and 16, um, and then we're, we're done with this little journey, this little window, this little peek into uh, the life uh, of the church at Corinth, um, and I have been challenged. I have been persuaded. I have been changed a little bit as we've journeyed through this book. I hope you have too, um, but we're kind of coming up on the end here. Um, but what a good what a good book, what a good journey it has been for us on this journey of becoming one this year. Our theme for the year uh, of becoming one body. Uh, and Paul has certainly challenged us and called us to, to greater understanding. Greater understanding of what the church is and what Christ's plan for the church was. Uh, but also uh, calling us forward in compassion. Um, Paul has given us a vision of doing life together. Uh, and this chapter, he really addresses two major themes for the church, for the local church, for the worshiping body there in Corinth, which also translate um, to us uh, today. Um, so as you're able, I invite you to stand as you've turned with your Bibles or your devices to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Um, there's two really two real major issues that he covers um, in 1 Corinthians 14. The first one is is um, the church being understandable, the church being intelligible, that it's important that people understand when they come in this place what our message is, and the message is clear. Um, and the second thing he talks about is church being an orderly experience, and um, that there's there's an order to things. Uh, we're just really going to focus most of our time on that first issue of of understandability. But today, as I read, I'm going to read from chapters or chapter 14, verses 20 through 25. So here now, a reading from the from the book of First Corinthians. Brothers and sisters, don't be like children in the way you think. Well, be babies when it comes to evil, but be adults in your thinking. In the law it is written, I will speak to this people with foreign languages and foreigners' lips, but they will not even listen to me this way, says the Lord. So then tongues are a sign for those who don't believe, not for those who believe. But prophecy is a sign for believers, not for those who don't believe. So suppose that the whole church is meeting and everyone is speaking in tongues. If people come in who are outsiders or unbelievers, won't they say that you are out of your minds? But if everyone is prophesying when an unbeliever or outsider comes in, they are tested by all and called to account by all. The secrets of their hearts are brought to light. When that happens, they will fall on their faces and worship God, proclaiming out loud that truly God is among you. This is the word of God given to us, the people of God. We say thanks be to God. Please have a seat. So I'm really uh, fluent in uh, one language, <laughs> English. Um, and uh, it's, it's uh, something that I've always wanted to do, something I've never taken the time or had the discipline to do to learn a new language. Um, I took a couple years of foreign language in high school. I think I remember that it was French. I don't remember any French at all. Um, and yet, the language that I 
don't know the best um, is probably Spanish. Um, through my time and ministry at uh, Centralia, we had a sister church that was in El Salvador, uh, and we took several mission trips. We took lots of mission trips, actually, down there, um, not only as a youth group, but they would take adult trips down there, and, and our, our sister church relationship was a, a, a means of grace for both churches, um, and we tried, tried to work to develop uh, that relationship between um, the church in El Salvador and the church in, in Centralia. Um, but I probably went on five or six mission trips with students down there to El Salvador, um, which was a little fun and a little crazy. Uh, mission trips are always fantastic, and they're also a lot of work. Um, uh, but as I went down to, to El Salvador, I made it my goal to be the person who knew the least least Spanish, but communicated the most with the people uh, in El Salvador. So um, I had my own Trent version of Spanish, um, and some of the Salvadorians caught on to what I was trying to do. Um, Spanish is weird just because I didn't learn it growing up, and so like one verb doesn't mean the same thing. If you have different subjects, you have to conjugate verbs in all sorts of weird ways. And, and anybody who knows Spanish is going, yeah, I didn't worry about that. I didn't do that part. I, I just learned a verb, and that's what that meant. So I always used it whenever I wanted to say that verb. And so I would get the strangest looks from a lot of the church down there. Uh, but there were people who understood the Trent Spanish. So they would be like, oh, that's what he's doing and that's what he's trying to say. And so, um, you know, I, I worked really hard to, and, and this was more like relational stuff. This wasn't like the planning of the mission trip side of stuff. I got a translator for that part. Um, but communication is so powerful. Uh, and, I, and I had students who would be scared to give it a try, scared to communicate. And people who had like two or three years of high school Spanish who were laughing at me too, saying, Trent, you don't make any sense. And I'm like, they understand me though. It's a wonderful thing. Um, but I came to understand that in my efforts to communicate in their language, I honored them. I honored them, that, that I would make the attempt and stumble through my ghetto Spanish um, to try to communicate to them. Not because I had to, not because there was some detail that needed uh, attended to, the kids needed fed for the mission trip. It's because I wanted to get to know them and I wanted to communicate with them one-on-one. The power of communication is profound in our lives. Paul has been building up to, to chapter 14 for a couple of chapters here. I mentioned this chapter a couple of times two weeks ago when we were talking about 1 Corinthians 12. Uh, hinted in chapter 12 is the idea that the speaking in tongues had become a, a big thing for the, for the church in, in Corinth. And he listed it several times in the list of the Spirit's gifts there. From there he goes on and writes this poetic, lyrical, masterful chapter 13, the, the golden child, if you will, of the chapters of 1 Corinthians. One of the greatest teachings on love. The interesting thing, and we talked about this last week, it's all about a church's love. It's all about how people in the church are called to love each other. Not two people that are in relationship, not a husband and wife. 
But the evidence that's presented here is that the church in Corinth had really overinflated this gift of tongues. Uh, and and for, the, for the Corinthians, much like everything else in the letter, it's safe to, to assume that they had kind of made some stratification in the church. That there were those that, that had said, this gift is really important. That this, this somehow elevates this group of people or this somehow lifts them high as opposed to the other people in the church who didn't have that gift. Again, we hear that in the church in Corinth, there's the haves and the have-nots. The ones who had arrived and the ones who just weren't quite there yet. That those who were speaking in tongues had been elevated and propped up. And those who weren't had kind of been suppressed or shoved down. It was another way to designate the haves and the have-nots in this church that Paul had started, and it was concerning to him. It was concerning. It's not what he wanted. And, and I know we didn't read together from the very start of this chapter, but Paul, Paul links this chapter to the one before, talking about love, talking about how love is the ethic that guides us in the church. It is what leads us. It is what guides us. It is what tells us what's inbounds, and what's out of bounds. The very, first, the very first verse of this chapter, even as he turns the corner to talk about um, this idea of, of the church needing to be understandable, what does he say? First two, first two words in my translation, the Common English Bible, pursue love. He's not done talking about love. This is his application. This is how... He says you can pursue love. That we have to chase it. We have to go after it. It's not something that comes automatically for it, for us. And we cannot be satisfied without it. I believe that Paul understood love in this way. That, that the church cannot be what it's meant to be without an atmosphere of love. That the church cannot be what it's meant to be without an atmosphere of love. And as important as that is, as foundational as that becomes, Paul moves from this idea of loving each other, of caring for each other, into this next point in chapter 14, knowing that hopefully the foundation has been built, the foundation of love. And his point as he turns to chapter 14 here is the church has to be understood. It has to be intelligible. And so he starts this discussion about speaking in tongues in chapter 14. Now, a discussion of speaking in tongues in, in a Nazarene church is an interesting one. <laughs> as a whole, we haven't really endorsed speaking in tongues in, in, in our churches. It's, it's not a, a common practice. Um, Honestly, however, the origins of the Nazarene church are not too far away from the origins of churches that are really uh, use this as a, as a part of, uh, of the practice of, of um, communal worship, of, of gathering together. Um, I was chatting with Mac earlier this morning, and he reminded me that, that uh, there was one group that kind of merged together that joined the Church of the Nazarene in 1908, Pilot Point, Texas, that was called the Pentecostal Church of the Nazarene. 
Um, and so we kept the Church of the Nazarene part, and, and out of some of those negotiations of who we were going to be uh, together as a Nazarene church, we dropped that first word. Um, and, and certainly, had we kept it in, that, that might have changed the face of, of what we look like and how we, how we worship uh, together. Um, I, there's this, a story from college. I don't remember much of college, but there was this one lecture that I, I heard um, from a kind of a cranky old religion professor um, that was laughing about what, what life was like on, on Nazarene campuses. Um, he said that a lot of ministry majors tend to find music majors to marry in, um, in, in Nazarene churches. And he said, isn't it convenient? You know, you get called to us. This is a religion professor training us to, to, to be pastors. He says, you get called to this little church and you show up and there's nobody that can play the piano. Well, you're married to a music major. So what does the music major go do? They, they go up to the piano and start leading worship. Isn't it, isn't it convenient, he says. He says, I talked to my charismatic, my Pentecostal professors, and it's, it's a little different. It, it's real convenient for them to be, to be married to someone who has the gift of interpretation. Hmm. That when you read through this chapter and Paul says, if there's going to be speaking in tongues, we need an interpreter. How convenient is it that the pastor's spouse might be able to interpret if somebody speaks in tongues. I, I, I didn't, I, we, this wasn't an assignment. We didn't do, we didn't study the, the dating trends of, of people in ministry in the two different churches. Um, but it is all brought on here by Paul being so specific. Paul's message here to the church in 1 Corinthians 14 is we have to have an understandable message. Verses 27, 28 talk about speaking in tongues and that it, it, it's, it's important that it should not take over our worship. And, and interpretation should always happen so that everyone can be edified. Remember what church was like back then. There weren't churches. There weren't big, beautiful buildings that people got to come to. And play music. They went to their homes. This was a this was an early movement. This was this was just starting out. Church was done differently. Done in the house. People got together. They had the Jewish texts of old. Our Old Testament today. They they probably some of the churches, especially like Corinth, had these letters, this this correspondence from people who had who had founded them and, and established the churches. The gospels probably weren't written yet. The Gospels came along later. The Gospels came along as, as the first generation of apostles started to die off. And the church said, we don't want to lose these stories. And we don't want them passed along orally from one person to the next person. Let's write these down. This is important that we write down the stories of Jesus. And so what did they do when they got together? What did the church do when they got together? There's, there's pictures of it here uh, as you read down into, into these next verses. What is the outcome of this, brothers and sisters? When you meet together, each one has a psalm, a teaching, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation that, that the, the church would gather, and they would talk, and they would share. 
What's been meaningful for you today? Pretty soon, this practice, the church would try to be shut down by the government, that it became illegal, that they had to go underground, and yet their commitment to Christ was so strong that today we worship in a church. As crazy, as, as counterintuitive as, as it seems, this was the message that the church was preaching. This is Paul's message. It goes back to chapter one. We preach a Christ who was crucified. <laughs> chapter one called it foolishness to the world. A Christ who was crucified. Follow this guy. You haven't heard about Jesus? Well, he was crucified. You know that thing that they did to criminals? Did the thing that they did to revolutionaries to stop the revolution? It hasn't stopped. We're still part of it. The church in Corinth was still part of it. But early on, Paul was worried that these church gatherings um, be understandable. And took this time to, re to remind them that, that this message of Christ that he preached and that others preached along the way was life-changing and set us free. I think the church today still needs to, to work on this a little bit. There's, there's this Christianese that we kind of uh, talk sometimes, insider, insider language. We, we need to avoid that, church. We need to know that when someone comes in the door that, that they can understand the message that we, un that we preach a, an understandable message of hope and grace, one that Jesus says, I came that you might have life and have it to the full. For Paul, he says he would much rather have one sentence that's understood over a lengthy prayer in a language that was not understood. And that's why Paul wrote this whole first section of the chapter and why it focuses on, on prophecy over tongues in this first section of, cha of, of chapter 14. If you read uh, from verse 1 down through verse 25, intelligibility, that people must understand the message of Christ is so important that we, we can't confuse it. We can't mix it up with our own thoughts. That's why when I turn to Scripture, I, I try to allow what the Scripture says to be my lead, to be our focus as we get together. Paul wants the message of Christ understood. Uh, and, and certainly, as you, read the Old or as you read the New Testament, there are two uh, traditions of tongues represented here. There's, there's the tongues in foreign languages. And if you read Acts chapter 2, do you remember Acts chapter 2 when the Spirit came? Uh, and there was a blowing in the house, the, the sound of a, of a mighty rushing wind, tongues of fire came and settled on the disciples. And it was so loud, it was such a ruckus that a crowd began to gather. People were, were in Jerusalem, were, were gathering um, for, a, for a Jewish festival, and, and people gathered around. And the disciples started talking, and what does it say? It says, the people heard them talking in their own native languages. I wish I had that when I went to El Salvador. <laughs> I didn't have that. I made up my own language. It was native to no one. Um, but that's, that's the first tradition of tongues that we have, or, or one of the traditions of tongues that we have in the New Testament. Um, and there's a second 
tradition of tongues, uh, a prayer language. Voices of men and voices of angels that Paul talks about. And he even owns, he even identifies himself here in chapter 14 as, as one who had, had prayed in these other languages. Um, and it had been used in worship. The disappointing thing about this whole tongues conversation is that it seems to be just one more way in which the church can be divided. That there can be issues, that there can be trouble, that there can be division. Um, we found a way to disagree and question and argue about what Paul meant, what the New, church, or New Testament church was, was like and what we should be now and how we should, should respond. And I don't, I don't know that I have all the answers for that. I don't, have, I don't have a problem with the practice of speaking in tongues. It's a relatively new thing in the church, late 1800s, early 1900s, um, and, and a lot has been written on it since about 1940, 1950 uh, from biblical scholars. There's just been this new interest as denominations and churches have, have really endorsed it. But what Paul clearly says is two things. Number one, that there is no ordering in the body of Christ, that certain gifts are not better than other gifts, that there's no special indication of speaking in tongues, meaning you have arrived to some level. It's, it's a gift that some get, and, some, and it, it's also a gift that some do not get. But the second thing that Paul is crystal clear on here in chapter 14 is that when we gather and when we worship and when we call ourselves the body of Christ, the people need to understand the message of Christ, the message that Christ died for us on the cross and he extends relationship to us. And we can receive that or we can say, no, that's not for me. He gives us that choice. But that message should not be disguised by anything. That message is the message of the church. That message is the gift of grace that we give to the people of this world who desperately need hope. And so when we come into this place, I vow to try to be understandable. <laughs> I don't always get it. Sometimes you might leave scratching your head. What was Freebird talking about today? I don't know. But you get to play a role too. You get to play a role too. That you are the tangible expressions of the love and grace of Jesus Christ for the people who walk in this door. As much as words can be misunderstood, as much as I can try to present a concept and, and it not be understood or, or kind of get muddied or muddled, the smile of a friend is not misunderstood. The joy of love expressed and love shared is not misunderstood, my friends. As little as I could speak Spanish when I went to El Salvador, the relationships I made were deep and strong because the love was genuine in both ways. And I, I propose, I offer this suggestion today that you, the body of Christ, that we, the body of Christ, need to every day, 
as we represent the church, but every day as we come to church, get to offer that message that's intelligible, that's understandable. You are loved in this place. And you have a place here. And you are home here. That's why chapter 13 is so powerful. <clears throat> That's why it's necessary in this, in this stream of thought that, that love is our anchor. Love is our way to get to where we need to go. This is why he wrote this chapter on love. Christians ought to be known for our love, for our care, and our concerns. You remember John 13, Jesus said, and they will know you are my disciples by your love. We can have a great church growth strategy. We can hold focus groups, work out core values, mission, vision, values, a purpose statement even. Get all our ducks in a row, have a solid financial base. But if the message of love is not understood, Christ won't be recognized. We won't look like Jesus. We'll be left unintelligible, confusing, pointless to the world that desperately needs Christ. And that's our whole message. That's our whole message. We all need Christ and we all get to spend our lives becoming more and more like him. Amen? Amen. I'm going to ask the praise team to come up, and as they do, um, I, I really didn't have time to dive into the second half of this chapter. Um, in the second half, he goes into keeping order in the church. Um, we get this interesting picture of what worship gatherings were like that we touched on a little bit. Um, but this chapter, and, and I'm just going to state this, this chapter has been used to try and, and back a position of excluding women from serving in certain leadership roles in the church. Um, and um, I don't really have time right now to unpack that side of it. Um, but what I can say is this. I'm, faith, I, I'm, I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful to be a part of a church that endorses women in ministry. Um, and uh, the fact that uh, we have... Uh, Pastors on staff and staff members that are women is a great joy to me, and, and I learn from them, and they teach me, um, and we have uh, women elected to the highest office in the Church of the Nazarene uh, as general superintendents, uh, and I'm so grateful to work alongside these women who have been called by God to serve the church, and we're the lucky ones, amen? Amen. I'm so grateful. Um, and I would be remiss to not, to, to not mention that. Um, if you're interested in that, if you're interested in the Church of the Nazarene's position of why from the very beginning we've always ordained women, I'd love to have that conversation with you, but just don't have time to unpack that faithfully today. Um, today, may we be a church that hears Paul's call to have a clear and understandable message. And what is that message? That Christ loved us first. That we follow this crucified Savior, crucified Messiah that sets us free. And now we spend our time living life to become more and more like him. We're going to pray, we're going to sing, um, and Adriana will come and offer, or Adriana will offer a benediction for us uh, this morning. Let's pray. God, thank you today for your love. And thank you that that's, that's really the, the message that needs to be preached every Sunday. 
Maybe I won't use the word love every message. But thank you that love is understood more in how we carry ourselves and how we open ourselves to relationship. Even when we have to wear silly masks, even when the world seems upside down right now. May we offer a clarion, clear message of love and hope and grace for the world that desperately needs it. Make me a part of that. Make us all a part of that. And renew our commitment to live as you would have us live in the world today. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for being here with us today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you please stand and extend your hands to receive the benediction? May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. May you leave here today with the words that were spoken rooted in your hearts, ready to produce wonderful things and great blessings to many. Thank you for worshiping with us this morning. Go in peace. Amen. Amen.